Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Michael Johnston, a host on New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I'll be talking with Chelsea Shelley about her new book, Dwelling in Resistance, Living with Alternative Technologies in America. Chelsea, could you give me a a little bit more background on yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I work at Michigan Technological University, which is um, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I work in a social sciences department, and we have a graduate program in environmental and energy policy and a graduate program in industrial heritage and archaeology. And um, I have been studying sociology all throughout college, um, post-high school. I wasn't born in Oklahoma, but I graduated high school in Oklahoma, and I always tell my introduction to sociology students that um, we develop our interest in sociology often by starting with questions about our own life. And um, that's certainly true for me. I grew up in a very typical suburban environment with very few sidewalks um, and was always curious about sort of how we ended up um, living in that form of organization of residential life and what some of the alternative options were. Um, I did one year of college in Oklahoma at the University of Tulsa and had two wonderful sociology professors who really got me interested in sociology explicitly, um, basically as a way of working through my own sense that things weren't how they had to be, that the way that society is structured didn't have to be um, as such, and that because those were uh, sort of choices and they were um, the way that we organize society as a, as a process that's made or constructed, um, that if we acknowledge that, we can also acknowledge that it could be made different. So that's where I started. It's really just with my own understanding of um, growing up in mainstream suburban America and wanting to understand um, what are the what are the different options out there? Um, how could we construct our societies differently? And really thinking about that in terms of our relationship to the natural world, um, my sense is really that the, the technologies that we use to meet our needs and comforts every day are having devastating effects on the natural environment and that um, humans um, can, in fact, live within the limits of the natural world rather than sort of fighting against them. And that if we learn to respect the limits of the natural world, perhaps we could also learn to respect one another um, a little bit more cohesively. And so that's where my interest started. And um, I finished a bachelor's degree at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I was already interested in earthships and some of the other um, things that come up in this book. I finished a master's degree at Colorado State University, which has a wonderful program. um, And a part of their sort of focus is, or one focus that you can have within that department of sociology is in environmental sociology. Then I went back to UW-Madison, finished my PhD there, and had a PhD advisor who um, really encouraged me to to do some of the work or to begin the work that is uh, in this book. Excellent. And then I was reading uh, in the uh, introduction on the research that you worked with uh, Mustafa Emmerbayer, and he's the one who uh, sort of evoked the um, idea out of you, knowing that you worked with the Rainbow Gatherings. Is that how you um, started on this work, Dwelling in Resistance? 
Yeah, so Mustafa Amirayer is um, has been an amazing mentor, and he is a social theorist, right? So he really got me thinking about theory and really digging deeply into um, understanding social theory and working to develop my own sense of the connections between kind of disparate bodies of work in social theory. Um, he is interested in the things that I study empirically, but only kind of as a personal or um, novelty interest, I guess. It's not his, that's not his line of work. But um, I came into the PhD program at UW-Madison with a couple of research commitments based on my funding sources. So I had some um, funding from the, the EPA STAR fellowship program to study solar technology adopters. And uh, Mustafa said, that's great and that's interesting, but what else are you passionate about? And so that's, um, I started talking about rainbow gatherings. That became a part of my dissertation. And then three of the four case studies in this book were also a part of that original dissertation research. And um, a part of the interest, the way that those those case studies developed sort of in, identifi in identifying those case studies, um, the communities that are highlighted in this book are um, long-standing. Um, some of them are some of the oldest um, still existing non-religiously based intentional communities in the United States. So I really wanted to go to places that had a long history of success, decades of success, and had gone through some pretty big changes um, to, to understand how they navigate um, different choices in how they organize residential life. Um, another piece of the the selection of these case studies is that they, while they vary in the degree to which people in the community have a shared sense of spirituality, they're expressly non-religious um, communities. And so that was a part of um, my choice in selecting these, these case studies. Um, and then that they're just very diverse. And that was, uh, for me, again, an important part of my commitment is to show that um, there are there are lots of different ways that humans can choose to organize residential life, can choose to organize their relationship to the material systems that meet needs and comforts. And so I wanted a, a diverse array of case studies to really highlight that. And the excellent part about this is that it was conducted as an ethnography. You had boots on ground and you actually were able to experience and interact with the, uh, with the people there rather than doing content analysis or some other sort of armchair sociology. Yeah, so it's a different sort of ethnography. You know, um, when I teach ethnographic research methods, we teach ethnography as really going into places to understand the entirety of the web of meaning that people construct to understand their own culture, their own way of life. Um, and while that's certainly true in in one sense in this work, um, it's also true that I went into these places really focused on the use of material systems, right, and specifically looking at um, how people are accessing food and water and energy, how people are dealing with waste, how people are organizing transportation, really wanting to understand that relationship between the material systems that people are using and the organization of social life. Um, also key for me going into these places um, was that I was really interested in understanding, sort of focusing on the how question of how people articulate or how people talk about their relationship to technologies and how people actually use the technologies um, rather than asking why people are choosing to live in this way. Um, and the, the why question is tricky um, for lots of different reasons, one of which is hard to ask people after they've done something why they chose to do something because in the telling, there's always a bit of a transition. Um, but but another part of that is really a commitment to 
a different way of understanding decision making, right? That I, I don't think, and I think these case studies demonstrate, um, and really everyday life demonstrates that human beings are not fully rational and um, acting based on rational sorts of commitments to values, right? That um, our behavior is really embedded. It's really habitual. And if we can ask how people talk about their choices, I think it's a more accurate way of understanding how people actually engage with the world. When we ask why people make choices, that suggests that they have a fully informed understanding of why they're doing it, um, which really contradicts how I think about both um, technologies as an instrument of power and how I think about action and decision-making in human groups. Excellent. And one of the interesting pieces is um, a lot of people see technology as being freeing. You wrote uh, in your book that it's uh, it creates a dependency, and in some ways it's isolating rather than freeing. Could you speak a little bit more on that? Yeah, so, you know, this is really where you see um, an attempt to grapple with very diverse sets of um, bodies of scholarship. And so when we think about technological systems um, as in framing us, as shaping our understanding of the world around us, um, and technological systems really as instruments of power that um, teach human beings both how to act and how to think about what's normal or what we should be doing with our bodies or with our actions, um, we tend to think about technologies as freeing, right? The automobile is this ultimate symbol of freedom, um, but it's only freeing for people who can in fact drive, who can in fact um, access all of the monetary and um, temporal commitments necessary to maintain private automobiles. Um, it's only freeing to the extent that you want to do that. And for some people, they don't want to drive and therefore driving is not at all freeing. Um, and so really thinking about how technologies um, are used to construct an idea of modern life or normal life um, as really quite isolating and quite dependent. You know, our technologies... Um, it's great that you can hit the light switch and have light come on, but that's only true to the extent that you're able to pay the bills. And it's only true to the extent that you trust that um, large infrastructural systems and um, webs of technical and bureaucratic elites are able to keep those systems working, right? And so if we think about freedom as the ability to meet our own needs and comforts or to sort of um, really question what does it mean to be free in our sense of using technology, um, we can kind of interrogate that or pull it apart a little bit more. And so, um, and that's something that in each of these case studies, we see people working with, right? That they understand their lives as um, more free and more abundant using technologies that many people would see as sort of uh, uh, commitments to simplicity or sort of descaling or decentralized technology use. Um, these are systems that require more active engagement in many cases, more physical bodily engagement, but the people who live with these systems see them as um, freeing and involving independence rather than dependence. And what do you think creates such trust in the uh, uh, humans to use the technology and expect it to work and expect it to um, to to almost go off without any any trouble? 
Yeah, I, really, I mean, again, it's a, it's a for me, it's about developing and uh, really working with a set of theoretical or um, premises or principles to see that what we do with our bodies is also an enactment of what we think. And um, so the ways that we think about the world around us and the ways that we act in the world around us are really not things that we can separate out at all. And it's a commitment to a, a pragmatism. Um, similar to the Chicago School of Sociology, thinking about how people are acting in engagement with their built infrastructure as shaping how people think about what's normal to do or what's um, sort of typical or appropriate. And for human beings who have always lived with um, a light switch that comes on of the flip of a switch or um, a toilet that flushes potable water down it every time you want it to, um, it seems like those things are normal, both in the sense of typical and in the sense of right, um, that that's how people ought to live. Um, and for people who are choosing to live with different kinds of technologies to meet these needs or to meet their comforts, um, their actions are different, as are their ways of thinking about those actions. Um, um, they imagine the, the, the use of technology to be freeing rather than limiting um, when they're using alternatives that are really changing their relationship to um, economic systems to environmental impacts um, and arguably to one another. And one of the things, Chelsea, that you brought up is this idea of ownership uh, in, um, in popular society. Uh, even my wife and I, we, we are working towards ownership of our home. But the interesting thing about um, one of the examples was the farm where the homes were owned and built uh, by the a person who was living in that home, but when they sold it, they couldn't make any profit off of it. And the land that it was built on was not owned by them. Could you speak a little bit more on that? Yeah, absolutely. So in all of these cases, there's really an attempt to shift that model of private home ownership or private land ownership. Um, and that really ties, you know, back to ideas from Karl Marx that land itself can never really be a commodity, right? How do we commodify this thing that is land? Um, and again, again, gets back to the idea that um, we can organize our use of material systems in ways that are actually more freeing um, because a mortgage is um, a, a big dependence, right? It's a, it requires a lot of economic dependence. And so the farm is one example. Um, the farm has been there since the 60s. It was originally um, a commune in the true sense of the word, organized based on the Book of Acts, um, to each from all. And the community was not able to maintain as a, a commune in the true sense of the world and now is organized more as a series of cooperatives. But the land is collectively owned, which means that you can't get a mortgage to build on that land. So you can own the home or you can own a business on the, on the land, but you can't get a mortgage, which is a huge economic freedom to never have to live with the debt of a mortgage. Um, and in addition to not being able to um, take out a mortgage and therefore not having to live with the debt that, uh, of acquiring that mortgage. Uh, people who have homes or businesses at the farm are required to practice essentially steady state economics that if they sell their business or if they sell their home, they can only sell it for the value of that, including their own labor hours put into the home. Um, they can't sell it for a profit. And so that's true um, also at Twin Oaks, that the land is collectively owned, um, and also at Dancing Rabbit and Earthships um, 
as they're built in New Mexico by Earthship Biotexture, some of those neighborhoods are still organized where you buy a very small piece of land to build your home, but then the land of the neighborhood or the sort of subdivision is collectively owned, um, which was intended to reduce the economic barrier to home ownership. You know, that today when you buy a home, you also have to buy the lot that it's on um, is a barrier to being able to access um, a home. And so in all of these cases, they're really shifting how we think about what is private property or what is sort of ownership, personal ownership, and what's the value of that? Does it actually increase our freedom to have private property or private home ownership? Or can we increase our freedom rather by reducing the economic dependencies associated with home ownership? Um, and this is another example where we tend to think of private property or private home ownership as the ultimate form of independence or freedom. But in fact, we're very limited in what we can do on our own private property. Um, I live in a place where I have to have a septic tank. I cannot have a composting toilet if I were to choose to. Some people live in places where they can't even put a clothesline outside their home. And so our use of our own private property already is limited, but we accept those limitations as just normal or typical or unquestioned, taken for granted. And these case studies encourage us to really question that or problematize that. What does it mean to own pr property privately? What's the value of doing that? And are there ways that we can actually increase our freedom by shifting our model models of ownership so that we have more collective resource ownership? Excellent. These alternative, uh, these alternative communities uh, and the alternative technologies that they are using, do you find them to be a bit more disciplined than we are outside of those uh, communities? One of the um, concepts that you brought up was from Foucault, discipline makes individuals because individuals are both the objects and the instruments of discipline. So how would you apply that to, to your research? Yeah, so I think about um, Foucault's ideas of technologies as strategies of power, right? That the technological systems that we use every day really are instruments of power to to maintain certain kinds of relationships in society, including those economic dependencies associated with paying for the things that we actually need to survive, right? You need the heat or cooling or comforts of your home. You need the water that comes into your home, but you actually have to pay for those things. You can't meet those needs yourself. Um, that's, a, that's a strategy of power to discipline our bodies into being economic actors rather than providers, right? Or consumers rather than producers of the things that we need for ourselves. Um, it also connects to Marcel Mauss's ideas of techniques of the body, right? That we use our bodies in interaction with the technologies that meet our needs and comforts, right? Whether that's knowing how to use a kitchen, right? If you walk into a kitchen in any sort of mainstream house, you probably know how to use it because um, we have some sense of what a modern kitchen is and how you use the modern kitchen. If you were to walk into a kitchen that didn't have running water that required you to start a fire to cook, maybe you would have a very different bodily relationship with that kitchen because your habits are different. Um, it would require relearning how to physically engage. And that's what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about discipline, that our bodies are disciplined to behave in certain ways in relation with technology. And our minds are disciplined to think that certain things are normal or acceptable, that it's acceptable that we have to be able to pay for the things that support our life. Um, and people who are using alternative technologies, and again, in these cases, technologies that um, are decent centralized, that are um, sort of scaled down and that often do require more 
bodily engagement, um, that might seem limiting from the outside. For somebody who's never had to haul their own water, it might seem like that's a that's a sort of limitation, right? For somebody who's never had to manage a composting system, that might seem limiting. Um, it is a different form of discipline. Perhaps you're disciplining your body to engage in the world in a different way. But I think that engagement gets people back to um, sort of living within the limits of the natural world, working with the natural world, understanding kind of seasonal variation or temporal variation and how that shapes their own behaviors or their um, their practices. And for the people in these communities, when they describe their engagement with these systems, they describe it, again, as freeing rather than limiting, as a source of abundance rather than a source of sacrifice, um, as really contributing to a quality life rather than um, being sort of a burden. And I think from the outside, it might seem like living with these more simplified systems would be a burden. But for people who do it, they see it as um, really a source of abundance or really contributing to a quality life. And for me, that was um, a real key in these case studies and in my approach to doing this work. You know, um, if I went into these communities to ask people explicitly about their environmental values, I would probably hear um, some sort of narrative about relationships to nature that are different um, in some way because people are living more closely with nature or using the resources of nature more directly. Um, but to separate out environmental values as somehow isolated from the rest of the things that humans value or desire um, seems really artificial. And we do it in research all the time that we try to understand people's environmental values. But for the people in these communities, their environmental values are indistinguishable from their values related to how they handle money or time spent with family or other things that they value that all contribute to a quality life. And when you ask people what kinds of things contribute to a quality life, um, I don't think that their answers are any different really. Um, or not significantly different from other people. Right? We, they have a shared sense of the, the things that they value that are not just about the environment, but really are about um, freedom and independence. And the stratification was a bit more narrow. One of the interesting pieces of the book was uh, how you wrote about the, uh, the equity that exists uh, within these communities. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um one of the things that comes to mind at um, Dancing Rabbit in particular. So Dancing Rabbit is organized um, as a series of co-ops. And so you can build a home at Dancing Rabbit Eco Village and you can build a home without a bathroom and you can just access the bathroom co-op, right? Where you have access to a humanure um, toilet and you have access to a shower. You can build a home without a kitchen and you can just access one of the eating co-ops. Um, or you can build a home that has everything that kind of a typical home does and have sort of private access or, you know, individual single family access to those things. Um, so there's a lot of variation in the, the options, right, because of the way that they organize these overlapping um, series of cooperative systems. And so some people who live there live in single family homes and they can't act, they do not use personal vehicles. So they're not commuting for work, but maybe they're doing work on their computer and they're living, um, with the same amount of income-ish as, you know, somebody who lives 
anywhere else in the United States, right, given the work that they do and the way that they choose to live. Other people choose to live much more simply in terms of access to monetary income. Right? One of the um, members of that community said to me, you know, my principal income strategy is to reduce my need for income. And so for some people in these communities, um, what they're recognizing, I think, is that we don't value money for money. We value money because of the things that allows us to access. And so if we can access those things without having to pay for them, we're actually increasing, or at least for the people who are living in these communities, I think they identify that as increasing their quality of life because they're not having to work to engage in an economic exchange that feels isolating and it feels alienating. They can work instead to access the things that they want or need without having to just work for the money to pay for those things that they want or need. And in many of these communities, um, there is certainly less stratification than we see in the United States, which is highly, highly inequitable. Um, at Twin Oaks in particular, which is a community in Virginia, there's complete, it's com a completely egalitarian community in terms of access to economic resources. Um, Twin Oaks is a labor sharing and income sharing community. So everybody there works the same number of hours a week and everybody there is given access to the same amount of cash allowance every month. Um, in addition to having all of their needs met by the community in terms of housing and food and clothing and access to healthcare, um, the community health to manage all of those things. And so Twin Oaks is um, equitable in terms of uh, access to economic resources, um, which again, from an outsider's perspective might seem extremely limiting, right? That you have very little access to your own sort of cash money. Um, but people who live at Twin Oaks describe it as a life of abundance, right? They they talk about all of the resources that they have access to in terms of um, musical instruments or opportunities for recreation. Um, one person described, you know, like, I have somebody to do my taxes for me. I would never have that if I lived someplace else, right? Because they share access to all of these resources. And so then they have more resources at their disposal than they otherwise would without needing to pay for access to those things. And then also the, the sustainability that each of these communities have with the community gardens and uh, midwives, uh, as I was thinking about with the farm, and just the general experience that uh, uh, each of these uh, people on each of these in each of these communities uh, have with their environment experiencing death and birth uh, slightly different than what we uh, what we do outside of these communities. Uh, one of the pieces that you wrote about is uh, being in a drug uh, a drugged haze when dying or when giving birth to a child yeah and so that's you know that's where the sort of um messiness of uh, the reality of doing ethnographic work comes in, I think, um, and just the messiness of real life, I suppose, that, you know, I went to study technologies and thought really specifically about technologies related to food, water, energy, waste, transportation. Um, but the ways that people engage with the material systems that meet needs and comforts, um, that doesn't happen in isolation. It happens um, in conjunction with the ways that people engage with the organization of life, the organization of work, um, the buildings themselves, and yes, the organization of um, 
birth and death and really changes the way that people are engaging with um, a whole series of sort of life events or life supporting systems. So if we think about the, the technological systems that we use that meet our needs and comforts really shape both how we organize our societies and how we organize our daily life, right? It's impossible to think about them in isolation. And the farm is um, probably most well-known for midwifery. You know, it's the home of Ina Mae Gaskin and her very well-known spiritual midwifery. There's still a midwifery clinic there. Lots of babies are born there every year. Um, And so that's a big part of what they do at the farm. But I don't think it can be seen outside of the the larger orientation to life um, that I describe as sort of a a custodial, that they um, are caring for people as they um, go through the process of birth, but they're also caring for people who are going through the process of death, right? Because the farm has been there since the 60s. It's now a four-generation community, right? Many of the original members of the farm have brought their own parents to the farm um, as they needed care as they were getting older. Now people who were original members of the farm are getting older, dying on the farm, um, and going through the process of having um, the midwifing of death as well, where you're really just caring. Um, And that is also their orientation to land, right? And so this is, again, where we see um, how how we conceive of our relationship to nature and how we conceive of our relationship to other humans, I don't think we can think about it in isolation. And um, here's a place where people are, are really committed to the idea of bearing witness to transition um, and also really committed to the idea of um, bearing witness to the land, seeing land as something that people don't own but can care for and can maintain. And people uh, at the farm, many told me in the process of being there and talking to people that putting land into conservation reserve programs, putting land aside so that it cannot be developed, um, so that you can try to protect biodiversity or protect um, water quality, um, soil quality, that those are some of the most important things that we can be doing today is to try to protect land basically from ourselves right? Um, in the same way that they are caring for or taking care of other humans um, in their processes of transition. I found that part very interesting. I teach at a uh, Quaker institution in uh, southeastern Iowa and uh, the inner light and the uh, bear- and bearing witness comes up a lot in uh, in some of the religion courses that we teach. And that's really an idea that has um, stayed with the farm, right? And it's another um, another great example of how interconnected um, these orientations, these overarching value systems that may or may not be conscious, uh, certainly not entirely so, um, and sort of how they shape relationships to nature, relationships to humans, um, relationships to the economy. So the farm um, has many nonprofits located there, and the businesses and the nonprofits that are located at the farm also are um, adhere to the same sorts of values, right? And so they're aligned with the values of the community. Um, and they're able to make that work, right? They're able to um, have successful economies, to have businesses there, um, to have people working for nonprofit organizations and to do good work that's in alignment with their values as a community, their values of, of really caretaking, of um, caring for others of caring for nature, um, of doing work that's in alignment with values rather than seeing work as something that's somehow excluded from your value system.
Well, thank you again for uh, this interview today. We're all out of time. Um, but the uh, special question is, uh, what are you working on now? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So I am hoping to get back to these communities and to sort of shift the focus. So one of the um, really unique things about where I work here at Michigan Technological University as an engineering school, um, it's a it's a highly interdisciplinary environment. So I um, get to work with lots of collaborators and colleagues who can help me answer questions that I could not answer myself. So one of the lines of work that we're developing right now is to really go into these communities to try to understand their environmental impacts to even get a sense of um, what are the best ways for us to measure environmental impacts at the community scale if we want to understand how these technologies are impacting the natural environment um, what are the ways that we can do that? And so that's one um, line of work that we're developing, and we're developing that in collaboration with the communities themselves um, and with ecological scientists and engineering scientists here at Tech. And then the other side of um, my interest and continued interest in these communities is to really dig into the economies, right? Um, my initial interests were all focused on the use of material systems to meet needs and comforts and how we think about those, those technological infrastructures. Um, and now I'm really interested in understanding um, how can we take some of the ideas that these communities are using to organize their economic systems and learn some lessons from them that you could take sort of outside of these communities, right? So you don't have to live in an intentional community to engage in sharing systems. You don't have to live in an intentional community to organize more of our access to material resources using a cooperative model. So really wanting to understand um, how are they making economies work um, and what lessons can we learn from that to, um, to help make our own economy work better.